mother from the fathers, the mothers and the old ones. Pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. I have learned from the sisters, the brothers and the bold ones. Pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. Pass it on. Voices ring true. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Matt Arndt with the Western Ag Life podcast, here to bring you another one of our Voices podcasts where we sit down with some individuals here in the Southwest that are involved in agriculture and and the Western way of life. And um, this podcast, we're going to be featuring Dr. Marvin Selke, who was a professor of animal science at the University of Arizona. And so for anybody that is involved in agriculture here in the southwestern U.S., um, surely you know Dr. Selke and, and what an important role he has played to many involved in agriculture. And um, so Paul Ramirez and Dean Fish uh, sat down with Dr. Selke here recently and got a really good in-depth look at his his life and his career and what he's done at the uh, uh, Pima County Fair and uh, his involvement at the University of Arizona and how he got his start in academia and so forth. So um, super, super uh, neat guy, and I sure enjoyed listening to the conversation, and I know that you guys will too. And um, this episode is proudly being sponsored by Old Town Horse and Pet Supplies, located on the west side of Tucson. And they are your one-stop shop for all things uh, horse and livestock and feed. So if you have any of those needs, be sure to go and give them a visit there on the west side of town. And so without further ado, here is Dr. Selke, Paul, and Dean. All right, welcome to Western Ag Voices. This is a production of Western Ag Life Media. I'm your co-host, Dean Fish, along with Paul Ramirez. And this podcast tries to tell the stories of that rich fabric of the people and characters that make up the West. And today's guest is Dr. Marvin Selke. And so that may not be a name that you recognize right off the bat as Western, um, but I'll promise you by the end of this podcast that you're going to see exactly why we have him on here. I think that, um, in my opinion, Dr. Selke is he's a professor emeritus at the U- University of Arizona Animal Sciences, but has influenced thousands of students in animal science and done a lot of things that we're going to find out through this podcast. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Selke, and I'll continue to call him Dr. Selke because he was, um, in full disclosure, my undergraduate advisor, and he served on my master's committee, so he'll always be Dr. Selke to me. Um, but um, anyway, so welcome, Dr. Selke. Like. Uh- I appreciate the chance to be here, but uh, as I've gone on, gone on beyond my years at the university, I sometimes just as soon go by Marv. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll try to. I'll try that on, but we'll see. Okay. <laughs> we'll see how long, long, we probably long won't be calling you Marvin very much today. <laughs> so, like all good stories, um, why don't we kind of start at the beginning? So, tell us about where you were born and 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 kind of where you grew up, Doctor Selke. Well, I grew up on a little farm in Northwest Iowa. Uh, by today's standards, it would have been a pretty small farm. It was only 120 acres, and uh, it was pretty diversified. With the, We had a few cows. We had uh, quite a few pigs. We had the chickens. So everything that was pretty typical of that area at that time. 
And I was actually born in the farmhouse at home. And uh, one of the other things I've, to carry on from that, I tell people I'm 86 years old now, and I've never spent a night in a hospital in my life. That isn't that I haven't had some health concerns, but my early life uh, certainly was pretty typical of the, being around a small town. I went to a country school on Patel second grade, and then we went to what we called town school. So that was kind of my early beginning. And what year were you born in, Doc? 1936. 36, okay. Yeah, so that so so did your your family made their living on that farm with that 120 acres? Oh yes, yeah. Of course, we were we were uh, still had some horses. I can't ever remember when we didn't have a tractor, but we still had horses and uh, used them some. And and uh, some of my first work experience, I guess, in the neighborhood was when we were con- or thrashing oats, and the oats, of course, had to be shocked and and hauled in on the bundle wagons and. People were getting rid of tractors and and or getting rid of horses. So some people had to use the tractor. So they used just young kids. I was about ten or eleven years old, and I I drove the tractor on a bundle wagon for one of our neighbors. So that was one of my early experiences working. Yeah, did you get paid for that? Uh, not very much. But yes, <laughs> yes, they paid us a little bit. Yeah, but they fed us good. Right, <laughs> whole different whole different era. And certainly, there's nothing like good oat dust down your back when you're sweaty. <laughs> Boy, that is right. Yeah. yeah, nothing itches like that. The other thing I remember about those days is that uh, uh, it w- it really was bad, particularly for people that were working in the in the straw straw stack. Uh, stacking that straw as it came out of the thrashing machine so yeah a whole different experience that we don't have any idea with our modern technology and modern equipment well the other thing is i I started to say and lost my train of thought there but uh we didn't have uh electricity when i was born i still i think we got the rural electric co-ops came in and i with that time i think in i believe it was 1941 is when it came in so that was the first time we had electricity and of course we lived in a house with no indoor plumbing we had the two holers, and I think I was 13 years old before we finally built a new house on that farm. And so we had really some conveniences after that. Do you remember the first time you actually saw a toilet inside a house? Uh, well, that's been a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was more familiar with the two-holer, I guess. Right. Yeah. And, and they didn't have Charmin either, right? No way. We used Sears Roebuck catalog. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that before. Oh, that's interesting. So you went to town school. Did you, um, so at, at that point, were you involved in any like youth livestock type activities or were there opportunities to do like 4-H or vocational ag or? or? I, I was in 4-H for a short period of time. Uh, that was prior to the time I got into high school. And I had a couple of steers uh, that I showed in the, at the county fair when I was in 4-H. But then when I got into high school, we had a a vocational agriculture program, <clears throat> and our particular chapter was, uh, I don't know what they call it, founded or whatever it was in, in my sophomore year. So my dad said, well, you can't take over the farm with your all your projects. you got to do one or the other. So I said, well, I'm going to be an FFA. So I was an FFA for all those years through high school. So I And we had a very good program. Uh, the ag teacher was very good. Uh, we got to participate in some judging contests and and frankly, did very well, and so that kind of got me started to have more in, a lot of interest in the livestock area. Right. So, did you have siblings? 
forgot to ask you that. Yes, I did. I had uh, two sisters, both older than I am, and uh, both have passed away, one recently. And then my mother died when I was 13, and my dad remarried, and he married someone that uh, I had, we had known all our lives. We went to the same church, and, and she had one son, and he was a year younger than I am. So that was the uh, brother that I have. Huh, that's interesting. And, Doc, before we get going too far, what were your parents' uh, mother and father's both name, your mother's maiden name? My mother's name was Martha France, F-R-A-N-T-Z, and my dad's name was William. Everybody called him Bill, and he was the youngest of, of 10 children. Uh, he was raised up in a little, really tough little farm up in, in southeastern Minnesota, kind of on a hillside and rocks and everything. <laughs> And uh, my dad never got through the eighth grade because dad, his dad pulled him out of school because he needed it at home to work. Um, my mother, I think, got through the 10th grade as far as they went to school. But they were always very uh, encouraging for all of us to do whatever we wanted to do. And uh, my older sister ended up being a nurse. My <coughs> younger sister, or sister was just a little bit older than I am, ended up being a reading teacher. And a, I really think a very good reading teacher, too, so... Did either of your sisters ever have any interest in agriculture at all? Uh, they do 4-H or do vocational ag or anything? Well, first of all, 4-H at that time in Iowa was not like it is today. Girls were not in 4-H. Oh, that's right. They did the cooking and the sewing and that, that kind of thing, but they certainly didn't have livestock projects. And certainly we didn't have any girls in FFA at that time. It was a different, completely different time as far as the girls were concerned. Oh, that's, I'd forgotten about that. Um, so going into high school, do you have any fond memories of high school? or you know, did, What were some of your proudest accomplishments in high school in OAG or just in high school in general? And did well, you play sports? Uh, played sports, yes. Was I good at sports? No. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's why you went into more ag. <laughs> I did play. I played football for a couple of years, but I really was not a very – I was not a starter. Uh, I looked at the big – kids that are coming in and the recruiting classes today. And I think when I was, I think I played, uh, my playing weight was about 155 pounds, I think when I was a senior, which I'm far and over that today. Uh, but I grew quite a bit after that, so. But my, I guess my fondest memories re really were some of the accomplishments we had in, in FFA. We went on to uh, Sioux City Stockyards one time, which was about 100 miles from where I grew up. And they had a big contest there and there were just over 100 teams from four different states there. And uh, I was on a team with three seniors. I was a junior, and we won that contest. So that was, that was kind of exciting for us. And then we also did some dairy judging. We went to Waterloo to the Dairy Cattle Congress there and judged there and also did quite well there. So uh, that was some of my early judging experiences where we do, were able to have a little bit of success. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So, so following high school, um, you're the first one, well, maybe your sisters went, but you, you're, you're thinking about a post-secondary education. So what kind of went into your thought process then at that time? I don't know. There, was, there were a bunch of us in high school, at Albert City High School, that uh, really thought we wanted to go to, to college. And a couple of the uh, guys that I knew really well that were a year ahead of me, they went to Iowa State. And, of course, if you were in Iowa and interested in agriculture, you went to Iowa State College. It wasn't a university at that time. So that was a no-brainer for me. I actually was down on their campus a couple of times when I was a senior and got to know some of the people down there. So 
it wasn't much of a, it was not a difficult decision for, for me, and there was not going to be any immediate opportunity on a 120-acre farm uh, for me to go immediately into farming. My dad actually explored the idea of buying some more land, but he was pretty conservative about trying to spread out at that time, so that never occurred. Yeah, so that's probably probably a good thing. So you went to, to Iowa State there, and what did you major in? I was in, well, it was, today it would be animal science. Uh, at that time, it was called animal husbandry. So I, Iowa State was very well known, I think, in, in that area. And, and uh, having uh, some friends that joined the farmhouse fraternity, I also started to go, got to the, into the house immediately after I got to Iowa State and became very involved in that fraternity. And we had just, a, I'd have to say, an outstanding group of young men at that time that went on and had very successful professional careers after that. Yeah, so what are some of those, some of your um, colleagues there? What, what did they kind of go on and do? And do you remember some <laughs> Well, of them? Yeah. it's kind of crazy, but there were, uh, I think there were, of our senior class of about 20, 26 some, uh, there were at least 18 of that group that went on and got uh, PhDs, master's degrees, uh, MDs, uh, two of them were uh, medical doctors, and a couple of them were veterinarians. So, uh, for some reason, I I think it's kind of like another uh, faculty member told told us at one time uh, we were kind of a bunch of people that didn't know enough to go home when the ball game was over. We just <laughs> stayed in school, but uh, that was kind of the the group that I was associated with, and and uh, they really have been very successful. Many of them. Would that, would that have been an unusual percentage for that era? Yes. Yeah. It was a, there was probably a high percentage that went on to advanced uh, degrees, but I think we were an exceptional uh, group in that particular regard. So. Yeah, so what and did I, you— And yeah. today, I don't think everybody even needs to go to college. I think there are a lot of things that young people can do in, in a lot of areas that don't need to go to college. You go to trade school. There's lots of different things that people can do and I'm not promoting the idea that everybody has to go to college. Yeah, I think I agree with you. At least the farther I'm separated from it, I see that you know there is value in getting to work immediately. And and you know some people just aren't suited for college, right? It's just not going to do college or them any good to be there. One of one of my uh, one of our sons uh, is 57 years old, and he's now going to get a bachelor's degree this spring from the University of South Alabama. After all these years, he finally decided it was time for him to do it. He said earlier he just wasn't ready. Right. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear there's somebody stretched out farther than I did. <laughs> so, so following your undergrad, um, you, of course, went on to get an advanced degree. A did you go to a master's program or did you go in immediately into a Ph.D. program? Well, when I got, when I got to my senior year, <clears throat> most, most of us at that time were in ROTC. Uh, so we knew we were going to go into the military, and, and things were pretty calm at that time when, when I graduated uh, from college. And, and so when I got my orders, I was going to be going for six months. So then I got a letter from uh, University of Kentucky. Uh, one of the faculty members, I think, at Iowa State had recommended me as a possible graduate student. So uh, before I went into the Army in January, I made a trip with a cousin of mine down to the University of Kentucky at Lexington. And at that time, they had probably the premier Hampshire swine herd in the country. 
actually they had a board called Automation that was the first certified meat sire in the United States. So that attracted me to them. And uh, I, the person I was going to potentially work under was an, at a degree at Iowa State, too. So we hit it off pretty well. So they offered me a, an assistantship. And so that, that's how I ended up at uh, Kentucky. Yeah, so what did you study there? What was your project or what was your focus? <clears throat> well, I, I was really working in swine nutrition is what I was working in. And uh, then after I was there for one semester, the livestock judging team coach uh, quit to go back to his family's farm. And so they knew that I had judging experience. So uh, they asked me if I would stay on as a, as a judging team coach. So I, while I was working on my undergraduate or my master's degree, I was also coaching the judging team and teaching a couple of uh, undergraduate courses at that time. Would, would that be unusual for that time? I know now it's common now for a judging team coach to also be teaching and as well as completing a degree. It wasn't completely uncommon, but uh, there were more coaches that were full-time faculty members, unlike me, who was just a graduate student. Right. Yeah, that that kind of that has shifted now. I think now it's more. Yes, more it, it certainly has, or, and did it did it at Arizona too. So. Right, for sure. Then, so, so Kentucky is that where you met Patsy? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, I guess that was probably uh, sometime in my second year at working on my master's degree, and I was about to wrap it up that spring, and I was doing a lot of judging of county fairs. And Kentucky has 120 counties, by the way. Wow. much unlike Arizona. And uh, so there were a lot of county fairs to judge, so I was always going out to judge county fairs. And uh, so I'll have to tell you the story how I met her. Yeah, I want to hear this. There was a big department store downtown, and her mother worked at that department store. And she worked there in the men's department in the summertime and sometime on weekends during the school year. And there was also another gal that worked there that was fairly attractive in, in certain ways. And so a lot of the male graduate students always had to go down and <clears throat> get an eyeful, I guess. And, uh, but Patsy came up to me and uh, wanted to, you know, I was really looking for a pair of trousers, what I was looking for. <laughs> and uh, I was on my way actually to Judge County Fair that day and I just stopped in there and I did get the pair of trousers, but I also got a, a tie that I don't think I ever wore because it took me that longer to get her phone number. Right. So. So that started, and then we started the date and, and married the next year. So tell us a little bit about that first date, though. I think there was some interesting stuff that happened on the first date, I think, as Patsy tells it, right? Well, as Patsy tells the story, she was actually dating another guy, too. And <laughs> and uh, the, the department store was on a corner, and she told the other guy to come and meet her at one door, and she told me to come to the <laughs> other door, and you know which door she came to. So <laughs> right. So now all the world can know how we met. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I'm sure glad you did. <laughs> and so how many years has it been now, Doc? Uh, let me think real quick. Uh, six, 62. 62 yeah, years. We were married in 61, so yeah. Amen. We're, we're 61 years gone, 62, I believe it is. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, she's a, she's a wonderful person, and I sure enjoyed um, you know getting to know her. Then, then the, I can add to that story a little bit. I tell everybody we had a hurry-up wedding, and uh, what happened was we— that was in the summertime, and then we got engaged in Easter when we got married that Christmas. And then that was in 1961, and uh, I, I had another graduate student moved uh, someone to Carbondale, Illinois, that took a job at Southern, Southern Illinois University. 
And uh, we drove a U-Haul truck out from Lexington to Carbondale and back in one day and got, a, got there early in, or got in late at night. Of course, we didn't have cell phones, didn't have radio, anything. The next morning, Patsy called me and, and said, have you heard the news? And she said, I said, no, we just got in after midnight last night. And she said, well, you're in the Army. So that was when they closed the Berlin Wall, and uh, we were back in the Army again and training troops. And so, so we decided rather than getting married at uh, Christmas time, we'd just get married in about 11 days later. So that was our hurry-up wedding. So she stayed in school, and I went to the Army. Yeah. And but you knew she was a one. She, I knew that for a long time. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so you go in the Army then at that point? How long were you? We were in ten, 10 and a half months that time. We first had uh, orders to go to Fort Ord, I think it was. No, that's no, not right. It was to Louisiana. I forgot the base. But then they changed it to uh, uh, Fort Polk in, uh, in Arkansas. And that's where we ended up training troops. The first day, myself and another guy drove on the base, and we found two uh, MPs. Uh, we left ten and a half months later, and there were ten thousand troops being trained there. Wow, huh. that's incredible. But that wasn't a bad experience because I, I didn't. Nobody shot at me. I wasn't shooting anybody, and they weren't shooting back. So, right. so you so you complete that service, and had you completed your degree at Kentucky, or I'd completed my master's degree, and I was intending to go ahead for a PhD at that S time at, at Kentucky, still yes. to stay there. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, did you do that? Stayed there another two years and finished that up. Oh, very good. Was that also in swine nutrition? Yes. Yeah, it was. All right. Very cool. So you, so you, now you have your PhD. Do you have, have you have either your boys been born yet? I guess it'd be the first one. <laughs> uh, yes, the uh, the first first son was born about a year and a half, I guess, after we got married. Right. Very good. So you so you graduate, and so what's your next step? What's your next move after you get your well, PhD? Well, I really didn't have to contemplate too long. They were offering me a job at Kentucky, but that. That offer got uh, with, uh, pulled because they decided they weren't going to hire recently, recent graduates from PhDs in their the university, and that's not uncommon across the country. But a year before uh, I actually got my degree, I got a call from uh, Bruce Taylor at uh, University of Arizona, and he had been my sophomore advisor at Iowa, at Iowa State. And he said, we've got a job opening. Are you interested? I said, well, I sure would, might be interested, at least looking at it, but uh, I've got another year to go. He said, well, we might make that work. So actually, in, that was in the summertime. And then in that January, I actually flew uh, out to Tucson, and they offered me the job while I was there. Was that the first time you'd been to Arizona? Didn't even know where Tucson was. <laughs> what did you think of it when you? When I, I you think got there it? was an old western. It used to have an Arizona map on it. I right. believe that I, I used to kind of know it was close to Mexico, but that was about all I knew. <laughs> I certainly didn't know where Tucson was. And oh. there certainly wasn't very many hogs. No, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, what were your first impressions of Tucson, if you remember that? Well, Patsy can tell you better than I can. First of all, we we had a seven-month-old baby. We had a. a well, we, my Ford car was only about three years old at that time, so it was okay. But we we started out with our seven-month-old baby and a four-by-eight U-Haul trailer with everything we owned. Now, this was an unconditioned car, of course. Spent took five days to get to Tucson. I think we spent three nights in Texas. And uh, we pulled in uh, off of the Benson Highway rather than I-10. 
uh, came up on South 6th, so we can get the vision here, and went to the Flamingo Motel. And the Flamingo Motel, if you remember, is just up there on Stone, just a little north of Speedway. And uh, as we got out of the car, uh, the dust was blowing. It was one of those summer storms come in. This had been like the 20th, 25th or something like that of June. We got here about, I was supposed to start first July, and uh, the dust was blowing, papers were blowing around, and Patsy got out of the car and holding the baby, and and uh, about that time, a squadron of jets flew over, <laughs> and I think Patsy cried. Where, <laughs> Where have we you did? taken me? But we, we've loved every every moment of it since. So. Yeah, so it's so it's kind of an, an unusual, I think, that you've spent your whole career at one university, right? At, you know, postgraduate. That's that's true. Yeah, I think. there were a number of us at the university that did stay a long time, though. Right. Yeah. So I think Dr. Taylor had a pretty big influence on on your career, right? And you know, of course, getting you here, number one. But I think you guys worked together very closely on a lot of the different projects and the farms and stuff. Is that right? Well, that's certainly true. I had a, a great deal of respect for Dr. Bruce Taylor. Uh, one, one of the things I think kind of tells the story about him is uh, we, he was running the beef cattle like a test station, bull testing station at the uh, uh, Campbell, or the River Road Farm at that time. And whether it was that or just some of our cattle that we had to weigh, if, if you drew came in early in the morning, you'd, it still would be dark, and you'd see him sitting beside the window, and that was an old dairy farm, and there was an office there, and you're sitting beside that, behind that window, the lights out, but you could always see the glow of his cigarette. But when he went in and looked at the, the bulletin board, there was a little note on that bulletin board, and it said something like, half of the fun of being in the cattle business is waiting for sunrise to discover a new calf, read a scale beam, or perhaps just start the day's work. So if ever he said, well, we're, we're, we need to weigh cattle in the morning, you knew that that meant just as the sun was coming up and it was getting light enough to see that scale beam, and that's when we'd go to work. That was just the way he was. Wow. And when I came for an interview, that was another story. When I came for my interview, at the Flam he was going to pick me up at the Flamingo Hotel, and he told me what time he was going to be. I don't remember what time it was, so I was going to be prompt and be early. And I was a little early, and he was sitting there, and the ashtray was full of cigarettes. The paper was totally red because it was all crumpled up, and he was ready to go. So the next morning, the second morning, same thing. He said, well, we'll meet at the same time tomorrow morning. So I was way early. It didn't matter. The paper was red, the cigarettes were butts in the ashtray, and he was ready to go. So that was that was him. He'd, he'd make the rounds of the farm about every morning, and... and uh, Always checking on things, and his department had we did we had a minimum of meetings. He 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 checked individually with people about things that needed to be done, but he made the decisions, and and that's the way it was. Yeah, it didn't have the committee structure that they probably have today. That didn't have a committee structure at all. <laughs> yeah. Who was the dean at that time? Harold Myers, what, yeah. Dean Harold Myers. He was from Kansas State, so there was quite a lot of faculty that had gone through either Kansas State or Iowa State here at that time. Yeah, pretty robust faculty, if I, I, I remember my history. Well, you may remember it's pretty robust, but it wasn't when I got here. Yeah. On the animal science department, uh, there were only, I think, four four people oh, really? in the department at that time. They had just lost two 
a year before uh, I came, the judging team coach, uh, Bill at Van Arsdale, uh, he was originally from Oklahoma. Uh, he had passed away with a heart attack on a golf course while he was on summer vacation. And another faculty member, his nutritionist, uh, I can't remember his first name, I never knew him, but Hubbard was his name. And uh, he had, I believe, had cancer and uh, he passed away. So, and then there was another faculty member that transferred uh, to a job up in Montana. So there were only really four other people in the department when I came. So it, it grew after that. And there were, I think, the next year, within the next year, there were three, three more faculty members that came to the University of Arizona. So, so when you were hired, what were you hired to do, or what was your official position? I was, I was really hired to do undergraduate teaching, which is what I did really my whole career. I, uh, I was first, I was coaching the livestock judging team, and then I taught the laboratories for the introductory animal sciences classes. And they also had a course before I came, beef cattle was the key, key course. That was the key production course. But they also had a horse, sheep, and swine production class. And I was supposed to teach that. Well, the year before I came, I understood they only had five students that signed up for that class. Well, after I started to teach it, several things occurred to me. I think I got up to having 30 or 35 students in that class. But why were most of them there? Because they were interested in horses. So I said, let's split this horse class out and make it a special class, separate class, which we did. And that class grew, and I said, we need to hire a horse person. I wasn't the right person to do that. I could teach basic things. I could teach fundamentals. But if you start, somebody came in there and asked something about training, I knew very little about that. That was not my expertise at all. So we did hire someone after that. And then eventually, I split the sheep and swine production class into uh, two different courses. So they were all separate then. Until yeah. I retired, and then after I retired, they've dropped some of those courses. Yeah, and 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 thank goodness you split those because those were those having those two production classes really improved my GPA. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> those were the classes I liked. I really really um, enjoyed and got after. So well, they were they were the classes that I enjoyed teaching too, and and then of course I had the introductory. Bruce Taylor taught the introductory classes for a long time, and I taught taught a lot of the labs. Although we did. A split that teaching a little bit with dairy science and poultry science in those early years, uh, but th because they were separate departments, then eventually all three of the departments merged: animal science, dairy science, and poultry science okay. all merged together. Oh, that's interesting. And so, Doc, just for our listeners, um, I think a lot of people would be surprised about you know how much uh, infrastructure there was. In uh, Tucson, as far as the dairy and um, river road, we just go over some of those and, and tell us what those were, and if they're not there today, what they are now. Well, the uh, main farm was on North Campbell Avenue, and that, that was the main f farm that we did most of the teaching at, where we had laboratories, and that still exists and has grown, but probably changed a little bit in the, the makeup of things that are being done there. Some of the land that used to be pasture land for cattle uh, now is really in the agronomy or horticulture area. And uh, really there's no grazing for, for cattle or, or sheep on that farm anymore. There, and even some of the horses eventually that were there, they've been moved to another facility. But other horses, I think, that are being used for the veterinary science program now, I think, are still there. Uh, so that's changed. The, 
uh, farm where we did the beef cattle performance testing uh, and had some of the purebred cattle there when I was in the early years, that farm has been sold and is now, uh, I think, a Jewish community center. And the feedlot uh, where all of the nutritional work was done over just off of I-10, uh, that farm has recently been sold. And I don't know who, who purchased it. I don't know what the intent of, of, of that farm is in, in the future. So the farms has certainly changed over, over the period of time. There was a dairy on Allen, too. Yes, there was a farm on behind the... Uh, Tucson General. Tucson General Hospital, that's correct. And that was uh, shut down, and they don't have a dairy farm at all anymore. Right, my I, I could just mention a couple things while I'm thinking about it. <clears throat> that some of the research that was being done at the feedlot, a lot of people may not might not be aware of, but when Bruce Taylor came, he brought with him uh, Dr. Bill Hale that had, was from Kentucky but uh, worked on the faculty at Iowa State when Bruce Taylor was going through there. And some of the things they did early on was doing work with, that would assist the beef cattle feedlots. And two of the main things were... University of Arizona was really one of, the, one of the very leaders in developing steam processing and flaking of grain, particularly milo. That was really an important advancement in nutrition as far as the feedlot industry is concerned. They also did little things, well, some, I say little, not little really, but did a lot of work with uh, uh, developing and advising on putting up shades for cattle. Now, that, you may think that's obvious, but it wasn't at that time. So just things like the positioning of the, the shades in the pen, the height of the, the uh, shades, the uh, materials to be used on shades, a lot of that work was done at the University of Arizona. And then even prior to that, there was a professor by the name of E.B. Stanley, Ernest Stanley, and he did a lot of work on, on uh, everything from, from uh, suggesting that higher levels of vitamin A should be added to beef cattle feedlots, and that wasn't widely accepted at one time and then eventually became widely accepted. He did a lot of work also on, on just things uh, out for range uh, cattle on, on how much, how much uh, water does a range cow drink, you know. I don't know how he, how he did that kind of work. But. And can I tell a story about E.B. Stanley? Yeah, please. E.B. Stanley was from Montana, and I guess he came, he came from Montana to Arizona in the summertime, and I understood that he first went to Yuma. Maybe that's where the train stopped or something, but I think he had some family or friends there he was going to uh, meet there on, on his, before he came over to the University of Arizona. And he came down from Montana in the summertime and had long johns on, woolen, woolen outerwear, and a heavy coat. And he, he said people had told him it was hot, but he really didn't know how hot hot was until he got to Yuma. And... <laughs> So that was a quite a transition for him, but he stayed on, and then he he was still around when I came in 1964, uh, but had just retired a year or two before that. So everybody that was in that department early on certainly know uh, knew who E.B. Stanley was. Oh yeah, for sure. What are who are some of the other um, faculty that you worked with over the years that that you had special relationships with, or you felt made you know significant contributions to livestock in Arizona? Well, and, and the West. Well, certainly, uh, uh, Dr. John Marcello was in the Meats Laboratory and did a lot of work with a lot of the uh, ranchers. 
did a lot of work with uh, putting on demonstrations with 4-H with kids, uh, taught those meat science classes, uh, taught uh, special uh, sessions for people that were working in grocery stores and, and about cutting meat and those kind of things. So he was certainly one of those. And then there was a, quite a bit of work with uh, Carl Rubicek and Don Ray that did some a lot of work with the San Carlos Indian Reservation. So that was another important contribution that was, was being made. Yeah, how about Dr. Al Lane? Well, Al, Al Lane, of course, was the uh, only beef cattle or only livestock extension specialist. So he he had to you know fit into a bunch of different slots. He had to to uh, he worked a lot with the young people in the state in, in 4-H, judged a lot of fairs. He uh, worked with uh, a lot of the range people, so those were his areas that he spent most of the time with. But we didn't have those specialists uh, as much as came on in later years after that. Yeah, so that, so there was a, that tie between Extension and the departments. Was that was that a pretty separate deal at, at first, or were they, it, they it was quite of... It was quite the opposite. They... Uh, at one time, they were they were uh, associated directly with the department in the department, and then I think eventually, as I recall, they they started to split out more and and were not directly associated with a department. Right. So I guess kind of moving on a little bit on on some of that stuff that you talked about the the farms, and so did you have official responsibilities in overseeing the farms, or you or you just work with the faculty and and staff out there? Well, it was kind of interesting when I came for my interview. One of the things that I knew that was done at Kentucky, there were different people that were on the faculty that were in charge of different species of animals, whether it was beef cattle or the sheep there or, or the swine there. And one of the questions that I asked Dr. Taylor was, uh, do you have a faculty member that's in charge of the different species like the beef cattle? He said, yeah, it's me. <laughs> so that, that ended that. But yeah. back to your question, uh, I did... After Dr. Taylor passed, or retired, I should say, after he retired, I did look after a lot of things related to the beef cattle. I kept all the records on them. I made decisions on bulls to use and, and those kind of decisions, culling that needs to be made. So I kept those, all those records, did all the re got all the registrations in order and everything. And I guess almost after, shortly after I came, I started doing that with all the sheep that we had. And we had, uh, at, the, at that time, we had actually three breeds of sheep. We had the Suffolk, the Hampshires, and Rambouillet. And eventually we got rid of the Hampshires, but I, I kept all the records on those. And I think we really improved the, the flock. And we sold, we sold a lot of rams every year, particularly to the Dobson Ranch up by Chandler. And they bought our rams for years. And uh, some years, I, I, I can't tell you exact numbers, but I would say we probably average selling them about 20 rams every year. So that's one place we, I think they were, they were very important that we uh, had those for classroom demonstrations and, and uh, field days, we'd have our animals that way. So, so that was my involvement really. And I, like I said, I was probably in charge of the sheep a lot longer than I was with the cattle. Right. And so you, you also, I think at that time, was there a an Angus, Brangus, and Hereford registered herd that the university had, or is that did some of those overlap? Or, well, they they had the Hereford cattle when when I came, and were just in the process of acquiring through some donations 
they were just building an Angus herd, and they, they really were, it had already become uh, a pretty good herd. And we used to, they were showing the cattle quite a bit, particularly at the Arizona National at that time. And uh, they had some sailor shows that they, they showed some cattle in. But we didn't show, I, I can't remember for sure how long. It probably was in the uh, 70s sometime that the university really quit showing those cattle. But not only did they, so they were, they had the Hereford first, and then they were adding the Angus. Then eventually, at one point, we had a Charlet herd that was to, uh, donated to the university. And then, then the Brangus came along. So at the time I retired, we really had the, the, just the, uh, well, we had Angus, Hereford, and, and Brangus. Right. Yeah, pretty neat. So one of your other big responsibilities, and I think what one of the areas that you're most well known for is for livestock judging and being the coach and you had several alumni that went through that program so how many years did you coach the university livestock team oh I, th I think it was 14 years that I started judging or coaching them right away when I came and I think I judged them for four or uh, co coached the team for 14 years then I think I filled in uh, when a couple of those graduate students one graduate student left early one year and then I think I finished that team out but basically 14 years so I don't know how many total uh people I had on judging teams but it had to be around 125 I would guess yeah no I think you'd average eight to ten a year anyway right well not always sometimes sometimes we did sometimes we were able to take a junior team to the Houston show so that meant we had uh eight that could participate as judges but then we sometimes would take an alternate but we were judging five on the senior team and three on the junior team so we generally take about nine to that on that trip, right. but nor normally we'd take uh, uh, five to judge, and sometimes I take two alternates. And again, the way we traveled in those days was a station wagon, and uh, <laughs> it's really kind of funny that uh, one day the Ernie Hussman, who was the farm superintendent at the Campbell Avenue Farm, one day said, "Well, you're getting ready to go on one of these trips." He said, "I know you throw all that." those suitcases on top and tie them down on top. He said, let me get you a piece of tarp. So he went out and cut a great big piece of tarp uh, to lay, to, to, uh, put over the suitcases on top of the station wagons, and we tied them down. You know, I still have that tarp. Yeah. It was good good material. It lasted, it's lasted a long time. But So there you'd go down the road. You know, you'd have seven of us in the, in the station wagon, all of our luggage on top. So you developed kind of kind of a routine, and it was always kind of interesting. When we did that, that I I could I could order breakfast breakfast and lunch for the whole group after about the second day because we're all pretty routine on what we do and what we what we eat. So you get to so, know them pretty well. So you probably had some pretty good stories about traveling with those teams, right? Yeah, some I can tell, and some I can't <laughs> <Right>. tell. <laughs> so I think there was there was one famous story that I think that you share about uh, San Francisco about it was a cow palace contest. Yeah, Were you yes. confused with somebody? Oh, they I don't know. I was confused with someone, but they called me Freckles Brown. If that's the story, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. You, I didn't even know who Freckles Brown was, but he was a a great bull rider, world champion bull rider, world world champion, and. Yeah. And I forgot the big bull, the bully road that was, was Oscar. Oscar, okay. I think so yeah. Well, but all some of the some of the young guys I had on the team were well versed in the rodeo, and so for some reason when we'd <laughs> go and we'd go into a restaurant or something, they they uh, got into the habit of 
people, people would ask, well, where, where are you going? We were obviously a group going somewhere, doing something. And so they say, oh, we're going down to the Houston rodeo. And this here is Freckles Brown. And they, they point at me. <laughs> so that, I think, was the story. And, and actually, then the, the fun part of it was that one year we were over at uh, the Cow Palace and, and staying at the same hotel where we were was Freckles Brown. And so, the, of course, the guys found him and and drug him over there and, and got a picture. And then later on, they gave me a picture standing with Freckles Brown. So, oh, was there so, any resemblance? Uh, I was ta- I was taller. taller. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing you were quite a bit taller. Oh, that's that, that's pretty funny. So, you also um, served as an advisor and taught thousands and thousands of animal science students over the years and have had a significant impact on, um, like I said the, at the beginning of this thing, on, on not only the animal industry in, a, in Arizona, but way, way beyond. And you had um, several alumni that had probably gone on and, on, and done, some, done some, some good stuff. Do you, any particular alumni or any of your students that um, kind of stand out to you that were, that were, you know, maybe went on to do something significant or... Boy, you, you put me on the spot there because yeah. there are so many of them. But I will say this. I, th- I think the thing that I look back on my career at the University of Arizona, the thing that I'm the proudest of is the accomplishments of the young people that I see out doing good things in, in agriculture or other things. And I think that's the thing that makes me the proudest. I can go up and, uh, Dean, you know, being around the Arizona National as much as you've been, you know a lot of the people, and I'm not going to start naming names, but the, all the people that have gone through there, a number of them have been the president of the Arizona National, and and so many th- things in agriculture that uh, young men and women uh, have done that I guess that's the thing that really I'm the proudest of uh, that uh, they've accomplished. And I, I think that uh, is is really the, the highlight for me. Yeah, that's sure sure a good way to put it. You know, I know that I go around and, you know, we had that judging team reunion a few years ago at the right. Arizona Nationals, and there were just kind of the, for me, the who's who of Arizona agriculture were a lot of those were alumni of, of your teams and, and so forth, and uh, just a tremendous impact. Well, one of the ones, and I'll, I will pick out one, one group that only because they're, they're, all, they're all named Steve, but I had three Steves on that one team. I had Steve Brophy, Steve Stott, Steve Todd and Steve Pierce. And, That's a bunch. <laughs> and, you know, 40, 30 years, I don't know, 25 years later or something, or whatever it was, I uh, was up the Arizona National, and, and a couple of them were standing there, and they had their backs to me, and I just hollered, Steve. And they both turned around, <laughs> and I said, yeah, it still works. <laughs> if I wanted something done, I used to yell, Steve. And one of, one of those guys would jump. So, right. but uh, And they've all been very successful. But not I don't want to say uniquely successful, but they right. have been. Yeah, no, they're certainly certainly um, pillars in our ag community and way beyond for sure. Yeah, sure, they've done, done a tremendous amount of, of um, work and so forth. You also um, maybe some of the more memorable students maybe weren't the most accomplished ones, but I think you got a call one night. I think you remember sharing a story about a call late at night from a. Do you know who made? A, do you know who made that call? <laughs> who was that? I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, tell tell them about a call that you got maybe late at night after maybe some adult beverages, or well, they had some adult beverages. It, I, we got, I got a call. It was late one night. I don't think we were in bed yet, but it was very late in the evening, and uh, 
the guys are, I think was they were in Globe, I understand, and they were obviously imbibing, <laughs> and they said they had a bet going on, and they so they couldn't settle the bet, so they said, well, Doc will know, so they, they called me, and the question was, what do you call a castrated male goat? <laughs> yeah. That was the question. All right. So, so you I, ans I answered the question, but I still don't know, even know who <laughs> right. I was talking to. They they didn't ident wouldn't identify themselves, and I couldn't tell who they were. But yeah, you know, that was that was one of the stories. The yeah. only person in the whole state of Arizona that could settle that bet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Very good. So you also had several international students, right? You had a lot of students from Mexico that 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 came up and studied here at the University of Arizona. We had, we had some, and then we had some from uh, from Africa too. Yeah, we had. I took some. Uh, uh, summer travel courses, too, that I did several years. Uh, Dr. Hogan from Horticulture Department and myself did one in uh, 1965. And we had uh, we traveled over 6,000 miles on that trip on a bus. And we had several international students on that, plus some students from Mexico. But we went uh, from Tucson over to California, all the way up to Oregon, across to Minneapolis, down through Des Moines, over to Kansas City. Uh, I'm not saying we made the stops in all those big cities. We went to farms and ranches mostly. And uh, the other, other part of that story, Patsy was pregnant at that time with our younger son, and and uh, we thought the baby was going to come before I left and uh, uh, hadn't arrived. And so finally we were got about in the Denver area, and so she said, you better come home because the doctor said it's going to be soon. And uh, so I flew out of Denver and came back, and two days later the bus showed up with all the kids, and they said, well, what was it? And I said, well, it's not here yet. So <laughs> a week later they came with their, uh, turned in the reports that I required them to do a week after they got back from one of these trips. And they said, well, surely by now. I said, check in the fall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. He was, a big, he was a big boy when he finally came. He was over nine pounds. So. Yeah, is that Brad or Brian? That's Brian. Brian. Very good. So... Now, you and Patsy had, had two sons, and did they show livestock when they were growing up? Yes, they did, yeah. Not not to the extent that some people show today, but uh, yes, they showed at the county fair, and uh, they both showed at the uh, state fair a few times and at the Arizona National a few times. But certainly didn't have the sailor cir circuit that's available today and, and didn't have the jackpot shows and those kind of things. So... Yes, they showed, uh, but certainly not to the degree that you see some people show today. Right. So part of, again, part of your legacy has been service to the youth livestock in, in Arizona and, and way beyond. And so I'll ask you about Sela and, and Pima County Fair in just a second, but um, your involvement with the Arizona Nationals goes back quite a bit, right? Well, I, 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 would, I guess this year we missed the Arizona National. Uh, I was just coming coming about just ended up on a very mild case of COVID and Patsy had some uh, uh, skin cancer taken off her face just before Christmas. So we weren't able to go up this year, but that's only the second Arizona national I've ever missed since uh, uh, I've been in Arizona. But I started out really in the, uh, just helping with the junior show. And I'd a lot of times take uh, judging teams up there too. And, and then we'd work out on our own and then, in 1975 uh, was when we started the collegiate judging contest up there. And I would give a great big shout out to the county agents at that time. Uh, Carlton Camp, uh, Van Wilson, 
Bob Rasico, uh, Harold Lowheed, some of those guys that were in extension, they really were kind of the backbone to help get that whole thing off the ground and get it started. But the, the difficulty in those early years running that contest was in 1975 when we started that thing, we, I just did it kind of have a practice contest for my, my judging team, but I also invited a bunch of junior college teams in. And we only had beef cattle classes and horses because there were no sheep or swine at the Arizona National at that time. So <clears throat> then soon after that, we, we, we'd actually haul livestock up from the farm, to Campbell Avenue farm, to fill out some of those classes up there. And then, of course, as Arizona National added uh, sheep and swine, it, it, that became a lot easier then, too. Yeah, made it a pretty. We have, I think, a pretty well recognized contest now that it incorporates all those species and, sure. and kind of gets those young people ready for Denver. You probably have goats and, now too, don't we you? We do have goats now yeah, too. That would be the logical next step. Yeah. And then you don't have horses anymore. I don't no think. horses. I don't know that, when horses dropped out. Maybe in the nineties. That, that was always there. Very, very difficult. You get, you could get people to bring in four horses, but were they a placeable class? That was the most difficult thing is to get a class that was, you know, had a good good top pair or good top and an easy middle or I don't know. It was just tough to get classes that worked very well. So did you, in those first contests, were you the superintendent? Did you help pick the classes, put the officials on and all that stuff? In the first couple of contests uh, after we started it, I didn't want to be the superintendent because I was still had a team in right. it. Uh, then after that, after a couple of years, then then I was the superintendent of the contest for a number of years. Yes, and that was all scored. If I remember right, the contest was held on one day, and then they had an awards breakfast the next day. Next morning, that the, that the county agents put together. Which yes, I that's right. On, on right, some of those, right. And part of the reason was because you had to score those with Hormel cards, right? Everything was hand every, tabulated. Everything were tabulated with Hormel cards. That's right. Take a while to do that. <laughs> yeah, it would. Because how many classes would you have, and how many set of reasons would you have in that contest? I think we were I think we were running uh, ten classes and five sets of reasons, is what I recall. Right. But then we were running the 4-H FFA contest the next day too, so you had two contests in a row. Right. Yeah. Pretty significant number of scores. Yes. To tabulate. So very cool. So now, kind of moving forward, you've spent, um, I believe, in excess of. 40 years on the Southwest Fair Commission there in Pima County. Is that, am I close on that? Close, but not right. Yeah. Well, that, that's, <laughs> that's the story well, of my I, life. <laughs> I think I've been, I've been on the Fair Commission since 1986. Okay. But I've, I've been involved with the Pima County Fair since 1965. That would have been my, the first Pima County Fair. And they asked me to come out, and the, the fair, of course, at that time was on South 6th Avenue at the rodeo grounds. And they, they asked John Devine and myself. John Devine was a graduate student from Kansas, and he was helping me with the judging classes. And they asked us to come out and sift the steers. Well, if you remember, if you, you can't remember that. You aren't that old. But in those days, we called them baby bees. And... This champion steers at that time, a lot of times were under 800 pounds. It'd be 700 and some pounds. Well, they came us, asked us to come out and sift the steers, which we don't do anymore at this show. You know, 
we, but they asked us to sift any that wouldn't, shouldn't even be brought into the ring. So they were mostly Hereford steers, and I would say a lot of them were 500, 600, some 700-pound steers. But there were some steers in there that were just thin. And so we went down through there and, and looked at those, and then we got together with the beef superintendent. We started down the line. We said, well, you know, this, this calf probably is, is too thin. It isn't marketable, really. Probably shouldn't uh, be in the show. Okay, and then we do that with a couple more, and then we came to one, and, and we'd say, well, this is the same as those other two we just looked at. Uh, probably shouldn't eliminate this one. Well, do you really think so? Well, I said, if you take a close look now, it's the same kind of weight, but the condition on the calf is, is the same. It's thin. It's, it's certainly not ready for, for slaughter at this time. Well, you know, that's uh, Mr. Fish's son's uh, calf, <laughs> whatever the name. <laughs> it wasn't Fish, obviously. He's the sponsor. <laughs> so, so then we finally left, and uh, I'm not sure what they did, but we, we gave our advice, and then we left. And then after that, I think I judged uh, pigs for, I guess I judged the swine show for uh, probably seven, eight years after that. And I judged the lamb show one year. <clears throat> and they, one year, I, it, there used to be in, at the rodeo grounds down there, there was a, an auction ring, which was fairly small. And that's where they had the hog show because they probably didn't have over 25 pigs. Well, then the show started to grow. And I came out there one night and, we're judging these in the evening. And they brought a class out, and it was, uh, I thought they said this is a market hog class. And I, they brought the class in, and I started looking around, and I said, something's wrong here. This doesn't look right. And I think there were over 25. There could have been 26 or 7 in that class. And I said, uh, give me the weight range again on these. They said 70 to 170. And I said, and you want these judges market hogs? Well, yes. I gave them all yellow participation ribbons. Yeah. And then I wrote some fairly good letters, I think, after that. And said, the youngsters need more guidance here. They need, they need some, some guidance on starting weights, some goal weights. And at that time, even the typical market weight on hogs, 180 would have been acceptable up to 230. 230 is the low end now, but, right. but at that time, 180 to 230 was pretty good range. And so I started to get involved more with working with some of the 4-H uh, people and, and trying to get them to establish weights and requirements. So, but that was one of my, one of my uh, early remembrances that it wasn't so good because I was really, really surprised that we'd have that many that weren't into that quality. Then I, after that, I guess I got into... Uh, uh, being a project coordinator for the beef cattle, and I did that for seven or eight years. And in 1986, I finally uh, got on, appointed on the fair commission, and still on the fair commission today. Wow! Yeah. Uh, so, and, and one question, Doc: uh, What year did um, they migrate um, from the fairgrounds to the current fairgrounds, from in town to the? Well, I'll, I'll back up just a little bit here, but the the fair has been at five different locations. First of all, it was on uh, at Elysian Grove is what it was called in, in 1911. Yeah, that was right, 1911. And that's just south of where the convention, the Tucson Community Center is downtown. And that was one year before statehood. Wow. 
that there was a, a Pima County Fair. It was held there a couple of years, and then it, it moved uh, uh, somewhere out where Keno Sports Complex is. It was there for a couple of years, and then, and then the war came along, and there was a big pandemic in 1918, as well as the war. And then when it started up again in the 20s sometime, it was up uh, off of Campbell Avenue, uh, south of Grant, north of Elm, in that area on the east side of Campbell. And then in the early 30s, it moved to the rodeo grounds. And then it finally moved to the uh, grounds where we are now in 1972. And, uh, and so that was the first year they were gonna try to get it started in 71 out there, but it actually, the move came in 1972 at the first. And everybody wondered, why would you put a fairgrounds that far out? No one will come. Well, now we're worried about encroachment out there more than anything. Uh, we have some activities now. We just had a rather wild event out there a couple of weeks ago when they got some phone calls because people could hear the band at night. And so, you know, we're, we're just in, and of course we also have to be concerned about light out there because of, of uh, trying to create a, an atmosphere that we don't create too much light. And so those are different problems too than there were 40 years ago. A lot, of, a lot of stuff behind the scenes and no one has any idea. <laughs> what are, so they, you, you served, um, um, again, very successfully and admirably on that board and several other boards. And I guess if I had to, if I had to ask, what, what do you think are some, and you've seen plenty of good and maybe not so good board members go through the system in different organizations. What do you, what do you kind of think are keys if someone's interested in serving on a board, what are keys that he or she should be aware of that would make them a good board member in service in particular to a fair or junior livestock kind of thing? Well, I, I think particularly on the fair commission, we've, we've got some people on there that have a tremendous amount of, of actual experience running a company, uh, a business aspect. I think that's, but, but we need to diversify. We don't need all one kind of persons. We need people with different backgrounds, different viewpoints uh, that can contribute. And most of all, the one thing we don't want is people that come on with an agenda. I think they always have to, to me, that's one of the big things. People that, are, that come on that have an agenda can't contribute as much as those that are gonna do the best for the, the organization as it should be run. So to me, that's one of the big things. Yeah, that's very well put. Yeah, I've, I've seen that same thing in organizations where they're successful are, are people that are selfless and look at the overall greater good rather than their particular little aspect. That, the other thing I would tell, tell you about our Pima County Fair is <clears throat> that we're, it's run by the Southwestern Fair Commission. We're a private nonprofit corporation. So people think because it's a county fair, it's, it's funded by the, the county. It is not. In our particular case, we do not get any money directly from the, the county. We get some money as all county fairs, Arizona National, SALA, all of them that get money from what we've always called the governor's fund. Uh, and so that's the only outside money that, that has come in. Fortunately, uh, we did get some COVID money as, as every lot of groups did. We did get some of that money uh, over the last two years. But other than that, uh, we, we need to generate enough money to, and we put everything right back into it. So we've really grown over the years in the amount of revenue that we've generated. We, uh, 
one of the things that kept us going through, and I'm deviating a little bit yeah. here, but one of the things that really kept us going through COVID was we, we developed, uh, took the old 4-H campground some years ago that had about enough electricity to run a 100-watt light bulb. And space is not big enough for these big uh, motorhomes or trailers that come in now. So we, we reduced the number of uh, spaces to about half of what it was and put in enough power, put in sewer lines, water and everything. So that really, during COVID, was one of the things that really gave us a constant source of income was people coming just off the road. And we've developed enough of a reputation just by word of mouth of people that we get a pretty constant flow. And not only that now, but we've got some big uh, RV rallies coming in. Uh, the one that's coming in in March of this year, uh, we've got a 10-year contract with them to come in every other year, and they'll bring between 900 and 1,000. The one that we've got a contract with to come in in March of next year, uh, I think the last time they were here, which was during the end of COVID, they had about 1,800, but we'll expect between 2,500 and 3,000 RV units to come in uh, at that one. So the RV thing has really been pretty good for, for our organization. The other thing that's happened is we took one of our big uh, meeting halls and, and insulated it and heated it and cooled it. I'm talking about old Pueblo, as you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, we've been able to, to generate more things in January used to be a pretty dead month out there. Now we've got almost, well, we had something, there was only one weekend in January that we only had one event. And most weekends we've been having two and three events, uh, hunter jumper shows, we have dog shows, we have gun shows, we have motorhome shows, uh, a lot of things going on. We've got the two drag strips that, or two uh, motorsports things, the drag strip and the circle track that we've got leased out. Uh, so we don't, we don't operate them on ourselves. Yeah, that's a, a tribute to the innovation and hard work that that commission and, you know, of course, John and his crew out there that kind of keep it all put together. The, the commission can do so much. Right. They, they can make, you know, we, we set direction. We, we try to have things organized, but it's the staff that keeps it going. We, we were at, at uh, 24 full-time staff prior to COVID, and we got down to eight uh, during COVID just to keep it running. So one of the things I guess we did learn is that a lot of the staff that were doing one job, they, they could learn to do two. So we're probably more versatile than we were before. I'm not sure we need to go back to 24. But uh, the, the staff, we have an outstanding group out there that really make things happen. And uh, it's, I think, working very well. And then we, as you know, the Houghton Road project has been uh, difficult as far as getting people in and out. And we're finally going to get a, a, a traffic light at a needed intersection out there that everybody coming in and out with horse trailers and motorhomes and, and whatnot. Now that at Breck, and I'm speaking uh, to you that know the, the area, but Breckley Road entrance now is going to have a, uh, a stoplight. Oh, that's a Se seems trivial, but something that right. was was hard to get for many years. It'll make the fair a lot less exciting. <laughs> Most of the time you get more excited trying to get out of there than you would riding a ride inside. Yeah. But yeah. One one of the so kind of bouncing back just a little bit if I if I will. One of one of the things I've always been curious about, did you get to judge any of the major shows or any of the majors or what were some of the bigger shows that you were able to to judge at? 
Oh, I, I don't say I've judged a lot of major shows. I really haven't. I judged, uh, when we were doing group judging at one time, uh, I judged the Keanu's over at the Cow Palace. I, uh, I guess the biggest show I ever judged was the uh, show at El Paso. I judged the uh, hogs there one year, and I judged the, no, I'm sorry, I judged the, the sheep there. Uh, I think I had 900 or something sheep oh. market lambs in, in that show, and the, the interesting thing to me was they said, well, we're going to pick the uh, grand champion at 4.30 this afternoon. Uh, to be televised live, so we need to plan accordingly. <laughs> so when you're starting out at eight o'clock in the morning or something, you know you're going to be on TV at four thirty. You got to keep it rolling. Yeah, you got to hustle. And I did uh, judge Albuquerque a couple times. I judged the the Market Hog Show there. I think one time I, was, I think I had about four hundred head or something like that. I judged the uh, beef or the Angus cattle open cattle show one year over there too. So those are, those are some of the bigger shows I've judged. I, I wouldn't say I'm world traveled by any means, but I have judged a few. Yeah. And I, I, judged every, I judged every county fair in Arizona and quite a few of them multiple times. So, well, you know, and, and I, that was another thing. You, you talk about what, what are some of the more enjoyable things that I've done. I think being able to go out to all those county fairs and I see, I meet, I met parents of kids out there and I saw kids that, ended up being students and I think that going out and being able to travel the state like I did uh, judging fairs I think was was fun to me and uh, it was also fun to have Patsy in the stand and and then uh, people be talking about the judge and then at some point in the, the show I'd walk over and and chat with Patsy and then the conversation around her would change sometimes. <laughs> I'm uh, sure she set him straight. <laughs> so that, so that you know, on on a serious note, um, I I do want to say and I do want to thank you that as one of those young people that you judged, you were my first connection with the University of Arizona, and you were the first one that I thought, well, maybe there is a chance that a poor ranch kid from Southern Arizona could actually go to college, and um, and you were. Um, um, maybe had the bad fortune to get me as a as an advisee, but or or good fortune, but but anyway, you were the connection that I had, and I know that 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 story holds true for a lot of students. That and you helped me with scholarships, and you helped a ton of young people with with scholarships and guidance, and helping them get through school, and helping them do things that maybe they didn't think they could do. And so, so on behalf of all of those other students, I want to thank you for that because that's a big big deal. Um, to me personally, and to I know a lot of those students. But I, I, Dean, I know that you worked a lot too while you were going through school. Right. You didn't have it given to you. I know how hard you worked to get your degree, and that was part of it too. Yeah. So. Well, and I, pr I appreciate that. So one of the things that maybe some people don't know, I was the outstanding graduating senior of, of my class, and I certainly did not have the highest GPA, and I know that Doc lobbied for me just because of some <laughs> of the some of the balance that, that, that I tried to tried to have there. Sure. And, and you know, Doc, when we were um, uh, on the infancy of starting this podcast, Dean and I, you know, we've talked about um, some of the people that were going to be on the front of our list, and certainly you were on the first page and um, had a great influence on me. You know, when I was at Amphi with Mr. Bernal, um, you were always a great access, you know, and, and gave us access, you know, to animals and that. And, and you've, uh, you've been a real influence in my life. And I want to let you know, you know, how much we appreciate you and 
appreciate all the things that you've done. Um, I, I got well, one more area well, I want to cover real quick, if I if I can. Did you want to respond no, to that? No. The, well, you 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 two are great examples of the people that have done things very well, and you'd have done that without me. But nevertheless, if I could have been part of your life, then I'm yeah, I'm glad for but, that too. But certainly, you're one of those people that both uh, Dean and I, you know, are in agreement with, had a tremendous influence on us. And um, we're a wonderful example about, you know, how to be and, and how to act and, and also giving back to this um, great industry that we're involved with, agriculture. Yep, for sure. So I, I do want to cover one other area. You have a, a, a hobby that maybe has consumed a room of your house, at least. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an avid hunter as well. Well, Patsy said I couldn't put the warthog over the bedroom <laughs> or over the bed in the bedroom. Well, you're so. out of room in the other room, so why not? <laughs> <laughs> no warthogs, well, huh? I, I, I guess I, I developed an appreciation for hunting from my father. Uh, in Iowa, we, didn't, we had pheasants, and we, we did a lot of pheasant hunting. Uh, we did some squirrel hunting, and the object was always shoot them with 22 in the head. If you didn't shoot them in the head, that was not right. You know, you do it, you got to do it the right way. Uh, we should use some cotton. We shot or some cottontail rabbits, and then finally we did a little bit of deer hunting in Iowa at some point. I still remember going out when it was I think 15 degrees deer hunting in the snow. Uh, first buck I ever shot, you know, and then uh, got to Arizona and and found out there was some opportunities here. So I've been very fortunate uh, over all the years that I've been here that uh, I've, I've been able to get, take all of the 11 big game animals of Arizona. And uh, as you know, I've been with some other people and I've made a couple few trips to Africa and uh, been to Alaska. And, uh, but those are not too, too frequent trips that really, but I, I have been able to do all those things. But you know my recent hobby? What's that? I'm a bird watcher. Are you really? I I made I used to make fun of bird watchers. They wore funny clothes. <laughs> they carried all they had a silly hat. They all carried all this big excessive amount of gear and everything and I always made fun of bird watchers. I had a, a good friend, Jimmy Engelman that was a taxidermist here in Tucson and Jimmy and I hunted together for many years. And Jimmy also, every time we saw a bird, we always identified it. So we didn't go out looking for birds. We didn't go on birding trips or anything. But in the early part of the pandemic, I was down at a park just a mile from our house at Agua Caliente Park. Patsy and I went down and took a lunch down there. And I saw a bird up in a tree, and I didn't know what it was, but I looked at it with my binoculars, and I, and I went home and got my bird book out. And I said, now I know what that bird is. I had to do that more often. So I started going about once a week. I go somewhere and do something. And then for my birthday year ago, Patsy got me a, a better camera. And it doesn't have a 20-inch lens on it either, but it's really a powerful lens on that thing. And so I send pictures out to some of my friends and everything. And, and I do it because I also like to hike. I like to be outside. And during COVID, it gave me an opportunity to, to walk. And, and I could still... Be, see people at a reasonable distance and talk to them. I didn't, I wasn't isolated. So during COVID, uh, bird watching has, has really been something that I enjoy. And I, uh, at my age now, I, Patsy worries about me going on those hunts and I went deer hunting this fall. And uh, people asked me, did you have a successful hunt? And I said, yes. 
They said, what did you get? I said, I didn't get anything, but I didn't fall down. Right. And I said, you know, as you get older, you're, you're, what's important sometimes changes. What's, what's really important. And to me, just being out going deer hunting with some friends and uh, having a chance to see some deer, even though I didn't take one this year, uh, I, I enjoyed that. But I probably shouldn't be out there because I still remember the day that I had to call in the helicopter to get Jimmy Engelman out of, out of a bad jam because he fall, fell and broke his hip. And that really almost ended his, his hunting too. So I don't, I don't want to uh, have to tell the helicopter that comes gets me off the hillside and he says, what in the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and uh, so bird watching is my thing now. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we sure appreciate it. Yeah, any, yeah. any other questions? Uh, Doc, what would be your, you know, you have all the species, you know, that you hunted. What's your prize species that, you know, you would feel most accomplished about harvesting? Well, I, I would say the the one that I probably would think was the most interesting would, would be a leopard that I took in, in Botswana. And uh, I had been to a Safari Club International uh, get-together, and uh, as I was leaving, one of the guys that we had hunted with, with Garrett Ham, uh, previously, he said, uh, you, ought to come, you ought to come and hunt up in our new place in Botswana. He said, I've got a couple of leopard tags. I said, well, I've already booked a hunt for a caribou this year. I can't do that. And as we, and we left, I said, do you want to go on leopard hunt? I said, no, I've already got another hunt. And so she said, well, you better do this. You may not ever get another chance. I don't want you ever to say in the future, I wish I had done that. So a couple of days later, I called the guy back. He was already back in Africa. And I said, I'm coming on that hunt. And uh, kind of make a long story short, it took us about three days to get there. And the hunt was, when we finally got there, he, they picked us up and and we... Uh, Said, "Are we're gonna we're gonna hunt this evening? We got a leopard. We hunt tonight." I said, "I thought we were gonna start tomorrow. No, we must hurry." So we hurried over to this place. And this they had had a beef calf killed. It was a out of a Charlie cross cow, and the calf was probably a 350 pound calf was killed by a leopard, and they put it up in a tree, and uh, and uh, covered it so the vultures wouldn't get the calf. And then we came in and sat down and my older son Brad was with me and we sat got it built a, a blind got in it sat there about an hour the leopard came in one shot the hunt was over and then we had 10 days just to have fun <laughs> so that and then probably my the other hunt that I really enjoyed too was uh out on uh, one of the Aleutian Islands on a caribou hunt you know when you go out in the morning and find that there have been bears all around your tent at night then Kind of makes it kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Excited wouldn't be the word I'd use. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. Well, I think we're kind of toward the end of, of what we um, wanted to talk to you about, Doc. We really, really appreciate your time. Any other questions, Paul? You know, Doc, you know, and, and just words of wisdom, um, I admire the fact that both Patsy and you have stayed very active, you know, up into your later years of life and um, I guess the good Lord's blessed you with health, and, and your mind is incredible. 
Yeah, that's one of the reasons that Dean and I, you know, when we first talked, well, we got to get Doc Selke right away. Um, not because we're worried about you going somewhere, but just <laughs> just the fact that, you know, I appreciate the fact of how you've been able to stay um, young and engaged. And just talk a little bit about, you know, what what's your philosophy on that, about how well, you guys look at life. One of, one of the things that Patsy and I have been saying for a number of years now, it looks to me like the only way to get out of 4-H is to move or die, and we don't like those two options. And really, I guess as much as anything, and, and this goes with being on the Fair Commission as well as being on the Livestock Sale Committee, is that we appreciate the people that we're working with. We appreciate the young people. We're always, now we're just about the oldest people in every group we, you know, get together with, but... We do appreciate the, the young people and the, the new ideas that they're bringing in. And we're, we're kind of a couple that sometimes want to say, well, that's not the way we do it. And then we see a new idea and we say, well, you know, that worked pretty well. So I think, I think the reason we really stay in it is because we, of the people that we have an opportunity to associate with. That is the reason itself. Amen. Yeah, and I, and I think you offer so much wisdom and, and, and so forth that people that come in new that maybe want to just change something for the sake of changing it, there's times when we don't need to change. There's that's a reason true. why we do things, and that's why we need people with your institutional knowledge to say, well, that's the reason why we do X, Y, and Z. Now, if you show me a better way to do it or whatever, I'm sure you're open to doing that, as you've just said. But 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 we also have to respect and honor that institutional knowledge and, and sometimes the reasons why we do things aren't always apparent, and that's why we need people like like yourself on these boards of commissions to, to keep stuff moving forward in the right direction. Well, we, we look at people like Gene Buzzard that was around for years, and, and every any of us that knew Gene Buzzard, we, we just didn't know how things could go on after she left us. But think of all the things that she did, all the things that she promoted, and all the kids that she helped, and and... Our kids didn't call her Mother 4-H for, for nothing, you know. It's because they, the respect that they had for her. And uh, so I think, I think I'm glad we can be uh, of some use to doing those kind of things, and we, we enjoy it, and we're going to do it as long as we can. Good. Well, any last words with, or Paul? And, and we certainly appreciate it, Doc. We appreciate everything that you guys have done for um, basically anybody involved in agriculture in Arizona, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, and far well, beyond. Well, thank, last you for, thank you for the chance to be here. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, sounds good. Well, signing off for Western Ag Voices, this is Dean Fish, your co-host, Paul Ramirez. Hope you enjoyed this podcast with Dr. Selke. Talk to you soon. Well, that's a wrap for our episode with uh, Dr. Marvin Selke. We hope that everybody enjoyed hearing his story and what he's done throughout his career. What a neat guy, and we sure uh, appreciate his time and, and thank him for coming on the show. and want to remind all of you that uh, these podcasts are, are not possible without the support of these great sponsors and vendors that we have. And so, as stated earlier, we want to thank Old Town Horse and Pet for sponsoring this episode of Western Ag Life. And um, uh, they're over there on the west side of Tucson, and they are um, proud to be suppliers of, of saddles, tack, horse supplies, feed, whatever you need over there. Uh, they've got it for your for your livestock needs. So um, anyway, they've got a great, knowledgeable, and friendly staff, and you won't be disappointed by stopping by and seeing the, the people over at Old Town Horse and Pets. So 
Uh, if you have any questions, go see them and give them a call at uh, 520-883-7387. So until next time, uh, we appreciate everybody tuning in and um, we'll talk to you down the road. Uh,